Hi, Flies. Welcome back to A New Year of Fly on the Wall. I'm Sam. I'm Grace. And I'm Robin. We are so excited to be kicking off Season 9. This week, we're breaking our usual format of Fly on the Wall to spotlight Hoyas on campaigns during the 2020 election cycle. That's right. Although classes were all virtual, that did not stop many Georgetown students from making a real difference on every level of our political system. To give you a picture of what several 2020 campaigns really looked like on the ground, we chatted with seven Georgetown students who worked on political races across the country at every level. In today's episode, you'll be hearing about the type of work they did, what it was like engaging with voters in their area, their election night experience, and favorite memories from the campaign trail. But before we dive into that, as always, make sure that you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at flyonthewallpod. You can also get in touch with us by emailing flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. So to kick us off, we'll fly to Maine, where we checked in with AJ Williamson. AJ, thank you for joining Fly on the Wall Pod. So give us your classic Georgetown introduction. Uh, who are you at Georgetown? But more importantly, what were you up to during this 2020 election cycle? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, at Georgetown, I'm, I'm currently a senior in the college, uh, classic Georgetown intro. I'm a political economy and computer science major, um, kind of from all over the place, uh, but mostly grew up in Maryland. My family is living in South Africa now, which is actually where I'm uh, coming to you guys from. But um, yeah. Excited to be here. And uh, this election cycle um, at, at Georgetown, uh, I also run the College Democrats, so I've been, been involved with campaigning stuff there. Um, but this semester, I was taking some time away from Georgetown to work as a field organizer for um, the Sarah Gideon campaign for Senate in Maine and the Democratic coordinated campaign there as well. Great. Um, so Maine was obviously one of the most competitive and closely watched uh, races of the entire election cycle. What was it like to work in such a high stakes context and kind of tell us about the work you did organizing and um, being in the field? Yeah, so uh, I guess we'll start with organizing work because this is something I think that's common across all types of campaigns. Uh, most of what organizing is, is really uh, engaging in direct voter contact uh, and organizing communities to do that as well. Uh, so if anyone's volunteered for a campaign before, this is generally where you get in on the ground floor is knocking on doors or making phone calls. Uh, of course, because of COVID, it looked a little bit different this year. We weren't doing door knocking for most of the campaign, which is a lot of what um, organizing often comes down to. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge and a bit of an unconventional introduction to it. Um, but a lot of it really is about uh, having conversations with voters yourself um, and trying to uh, build up organizations and communities so that people can um, have those conversations with their neighbors, um, make sure that they are familiar with our candidates and what they stand for and why it's so important to get to the polls. Um, and really just also trying to make sure that you are um, leaving the communities that you're organizing with the skills to continue doing that kind of um, voter contact and community building after you're gone. Um, so a lot of the day-to-day -day of that is just doing that yourself, talking to voters, you know, on the phone, at their door, wherever. Um, and then also trying to recruit as many volunteers as you can to make sure that that work um, is happening at scale. Uh, in terms of being on a, a really highly competitive Senate election and a really closely watched national election, um, I've done some stuff on campaigns before, more at a local level and on some less competitive races. And I think a lot of the day-to-day -day work is very similar, regardless of how competitive your race is. Um, but you are always operating 
knowing sort of the weight and the gravity of what you're doing. So, you know, for, for this race specifically, we were operating knowing that this was one of a handful of states that the Senate majority was likely to come down to. That has big implications for uh, the Biden agenda. And so that's always in your mind as you're operating. Uh, it also means you're under a lot of scrutiny. And so it means that you want to, you know, stay, stay on message as much as possible, because if you slip up, you know, there will be people who are interested in making sure that the campaign looks bad. So there is responsibility on you um, to make sure that you're representing the campaign fairly and honestly and, and making sure that that message gets through to the voters. Um, but other than that scrutiny, other than, you know, that sort of level of, of pressure, um, you know, the campaign never takes anything for granted. Um, we always operate from the assumption that the race is a toss up and that everything that we do really matters. Um, no one inside the campaign ever bought into hype around polls or things like that. It's always, look, this election is within our control. Um, all hustle, no luck was a, was a fun saying around the campaign. Um, and that's the mindset that we approached it with. So other than that sort of, you know, that pressure and that mindset of always keeping um, the race in mind as, as really being able to go either way, I think um, being on a race with kind of such a national profile isn't that different from other smaller, um, less nationally recognized races. Yeah. And so uh, you talked about the national scrutiny around your race, but what was Maine? Like we've talked with folks who work in Michigan and South Carolina, which were similarly closely watched states, but what are, what were voters in Maine thinking about? What was, what was it like interacting with them? What were their concerns? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the interesting things about working in a state like Maine uh, is that the voters there really don't care about the national hype, right? Um, Mainers are a quirky people. They're an independent people. Um, they don't buy into hyper-partisanship. They don't buy into national narratives. They want elected officials who they can trust to represent their communities fairly um, and to fight for those communities wherever they're serving. And so in that sense, even though, of course, our race was very nationalized, there was lots of money coming into it from out of state and um, lots of attention on it from the national press on the ground. That's not necessarily the vibe that you were getting from voters. You know, the, the number one thing on voters minds wasn't, oh, yeah, our vote is going to determine who controls the U.S. Senate. It's what is my vote going to say about me and my community? And will my vote result in an elected official that I think really does represent our community, not because of their party, but because of who they are and what they stand for? Um, and I do think that that is a little bit different from what you get um, working on some other competitive races. It's not that Mainers didn't know that this race was important. It was just that as a group of generally pretty independent-minded people, they're not going to let that be the primary driver of how they vote. They're going to vote for who they think is going to do the best job at representing them. And so that's the mindset that we had to go into every conversation with is that, um, you know, Maine is sometimes seen as a blue state and, and Joe Biden definitely won it. But especially for that Senate race, people are really voting for candidates. They're not voting for the party. And so you really do have to make sure that the people that you're talking to understand your candidate's values and why that candidate and their values are the best representation of your state. And, and that is uh, a big ask. It's, it's not just a given because they happen to vote democratic at other levels of government. So tell us about um, 
election night or was it an election night in some places or was election week? Um, so what, what was, what was it like for you personally, you know, having, you know, poured your heart and soul into a campaign? What was it like where you were watching and the people you were around? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, election night was a long night as I think it probably was for a lot of people. Um, so I, I of course was working pretty much the whole day, um, on election day, the field organizer schedule is pretty intense. You, you're launching can I was at least launching canvases to uh, go knock doors starting around 8am, which means that the prep for that starts closer to 6am. Um, so that's when the day starts. And then, you know, polls close around 8pm. Um, after polls close, um, organizers were sent to particular precincts to get results, um, which I think is a pretty common thing across campaigns. They want to have their own sense of how the results are coming in. Um, so I was sitting in a town called Franklin, Maine, population of a couple hundred people um, on election night. It was me, um, a girl from Edison Research, um, who is one of the um, firms that helps tabulate results for the, the national reporters, uh, and a couple of volunteers sitting in a, a precinct in Franklin, Maine for, for a couple hours as they got their results ready. Um, and then after that, to, to watch the returns come in, uh, I was back in my apartment. I, I was staying in Bucksport, Maine, which is a, a town in Hancock County. It's kind of close to Acadia National Park, if you're familiar with that at all. Um, I was there. I was also staying um, with my roommate, who's actually another Georgetown student who was interning on the campaign at the same time. Um, so we stayed in our apartment and watched the results roll in. Um, in terms of feeling of election night, I think it, it's definitely a feeling of tension as you're seeing this thing that you've worked on for months actually um, come to a close. But it's also the energy of election night is so high. The fact that you've been running on full steam for hours and hours that it doesn't feel tiring, I would say, you know, I didn't sleep much on election night, but I wasn't feeling too tired either. Um, I will say that, you know, the our race was not called super early. Um, Maine was called for for Joe Biden relatively early, but the Senate race was not called super early. Um, but things weren't looking great for us early on election night. And so I think that for me, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people, it takes some time to process the idea that um, you really might not win this thing that you've been working really hard to make happen for months and dedicating hours and hours of your life to. Um, you know, like I said earlier, of course, you go into it knowing that you can lose. Um, you treat the race like a toss-up, which means that, you know, 50-50, you are going to lose. And um, more to the point, I think the types of people who are attracted to working on sort of pivotal Senate campaigns um, are drawn there for the fact that they are close races that you really can lose. You don't go work on a Senate campaign in Maine or in North Carolina or a place like that because it's a slam dunk. You know, if it was a slam dunk, then your work wouldn't be nearly as impactful. So you've got this thread of, of knowing that you can lose throughout the whole thing. But election night really makes that real and it really makes it concrete in a way that I think takes probably days or even weeks after the fact to really kind of process fully. For sure. Um, and one of the goals that we have with this episode in particular is to give our listeners kind of a scoop, um, especially on what other Hoyas have been doing and what they've learned about the broader political world. And so what are some of the biggest takeaways that you've gained about politics throughout this process? Yeah. Um, I think one big takeaway that I've 
gotten is on that point about winning and losing elections is that um, for you as a as a student, as a person interested in pursuing a career of some kind in politics, um, landing on the winning races isn't a great way to go about it. You know, if, if you're picking where you want to work and you only go for the races that you're pretty sure you're going to win, um, you're not building the skills and meeting the people uh, that are going to really help make sure that you are operating at the best that you can be. Going to the places where it is hard, states that aren't a slam dunk, communities that aren't a given for your candidate, that's how number one, you develop the skills yourself of, of learning how to talk about politics and how to talk to voters. Uh, and two, it's also where you find some of the best people. Like one of the, by far the best parts of working on this campaign um, was meeting so many other really talented organizers, really talented um, communications folks, people in digital. The best of the best end up going to the places that are the most competitive, that you really do stand a chance of losing um, because that's where your impact can be the highest. And so one big takeaway I had is that it's okay to lose and it's okay um, to make sure that you're targeting races that are really competitive and that you really have a chance to do that because um, that's how you learn and that's how you grow. Um, another big takeaway I think um, for me personally is that um, the media narrative and the general hype around particular candidates or the general um, perspective that you get observing from a national level uh, is very different, I think, than what you're going to get on the ground. If I was watching this race from my couch in DC or from somewhere else, I think I would have thought that um, this race was a slam dunk. You know, Joe Biden looked like he was on track to do really well in Maine. I voted for Obama twice. Yes, Susan Collins is really popular, but um, partisanship is higher than it's ever been. Split ticket voting is lower than it's ever been. This looks kind of like a layup for Democrats. Being on the ground there, that's not the perspective you have at all. You feel like you can win for sure, uh, but you know that you have to fight for and earn every last vote. Um, and so I felt that that was a really valuable way to spend um, this election cycle, it was on the ground talking to voters and understanding that uh, no vote is a given that you really do have to earn it. Um, and so I would also advise folks who are interested in, in doing this sort of thing to get that type of experience, to not just stay in DC um, and get the sort of abstract political science, polling, punditry based view of politics, but the more visceral, more human um, angle on it, which you can only really get by talking to real people. Um, you know, lots of people at Georgetown, lots of people in DC know a whole lot about politics. Um, but at the end of the day, all of the folks at Georgetown in um, democratic circles, all of the folks in consulting groups and whatnot in DC weren't the people who decided whether or not we won or lost the Senate seat. It was the people who I was talking to every day in Maine. Um, and that was true for races all across the country. And so that is, a, I think, an important takeaway that going to where um, the action is actually happening, being on the ground, talking to real people about how um, they're coming to their decisions about who to vote for, um, that's one of the most valuable ways to engage with politics. And I encourage anyone who's thinking about doing anything in this area to do that at least once. 
So uh, as our last question here, um, you talked about the power of being on the ground and really talking to folks. So um, you worked and we're talking to folks in a contentious state in one of the most contentious elections uh, in recent memory. So what's one of your favorite memories from the campaign trail? Yeah, I, I had a lot of great conversations with really great people. Um, one of those conversations that really um, stayed with me uh, was a conversation with someone who had voted for Trump in 2016. This was a guy uh, who was on my list as I was knocking doors. Um, he wasn't sure who he was going to vote for in, in the Senate race or the presidential race this time around. Um, and this was a person who was not at all like me. And I think that was true for a lot of my conversations in Maine. Um, I'm originally kind of from the D.C. area-ish, but also grew up, uh, spent a lot of time abroad, so haven't really lived in one place. Lots of people I talked to were, you know, fourth or fifth or sixth generation Mainers whose families had been there for literally hundreds of years. Um, I'm obviously, uh, as you guys can see, I'm a person of color. Um, Maine is an overwhelmingly white state. Um, most of the time, I was the only person of color in the room. Uh, and so my experiences were not necessarily much like many of the people that I was talking to. And, and this person who I was talking to that day who had voted for Trump in 2016 um, was especially like that. Um, but his vote was up for grabs this year. He really had not been a fan of the way that Donald Trump had handled this pandemic, uh, the way that um, his kids were out of work and that a lot of people in his community were out of work. Um, and, you know, he had voted the way he had voted in 2016 to shake up the system. And the system had been shaken up in a way that didn't work out so well for his immediate family and his community. And so the reason that conversation really stuck with me was because we had almost nothing in common, uh, but the situation in the country as a whole had led us to some very similar um, places in terms of what needed to happen in our politics. Um, he, he was strongly considering voting for Joe Biden. He wasn't sure about um, the Senate race, um, but we were able to have a long conversation in which we found a lot of common ground over what we thought needed to change um, in our government's response to fixing the economy and its response to uh, figuring out the COVID crisis. And I didn't win his vote that day. He didn't tell me, you know what, thank you for this conversation. I'm definitely voting for Democrats, 100%. Um, but I definitely was able to give him a nudge in that direction. And I'd like to think that the common ground that we established um, helped explain why um, Joe Biden was able to win the state of Maine by a bigger margin than Hillary Clinton, why um, our race in the Senate was the biggest swing against any incumbent in the country compared to the past round of Senate elections. Uh, we came up short, um, but we were able to establish common ground with people who weren't necessarily much like us and find uh, values that could move people to support our candidates. And that was really valuable. And so that has stuck with me since. Okay. Well, AJ, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, we'll travel to the great state of Missouri, home to Dalton, another member of our Fly on the Wall team, and most importantly, my favorite monument, the Gateway Arch. Thanks for that, Sam. Let's hear from Edward Wu, who worked for Democrats on the House race in Missouri's 2nd District. Hey, uh, my name is Edward Wu. I am a junior in the college. I'm studying economics, although 
with COVID, my um, academic plans have kind of been on hold. So I'm looking to get back into stuff in the fall of 2021. Um, I worked on, for the cycle, um, Jill Shoup's run in Missouri's 2nd Congressional District. That's my home congressional district. Um, she was trying to defeat um, our incumbent, Ann Wagner, um, and unfortunately did not, but that's okay. Great, and tell us a little bit about the specific work you did for the campaign. Yeah, so I was a field organizer on that campaign. So, I mean, my entire role involved um, getting volunteers involved and, and reaching out to voters um, to, you know, get out the vote and to persuade people to, to vote for Jill. Um, with, you know, COVID, our entire campaign was run virtually. So uh, we didn't do anything or we didn't really do anything in person. We had like one or two events that we, we would do, but um, by and large, um, we did our entire campaign virtually. So um, my role basically entailed, um, you know, making phone calls from home, getting volunteers to make phone calls from home, setting up virtual phone banks, um, that sort of thing um, for um, three months or so. That's great. Um, so besides the fact that it was your home district, obviously, what drew you to work on your specific campaign? Yeah, I mean, I I would say it being my home district was the reason why I really wanted to join that campaign. Um, I don't know if I had, I mean, like, obviously, uh, I'm really in, like interested in, in democratic politics and, and um, you know, want to elect democratic candidates. But for my specific campaign, it was just so important to me. Jill Shoup is my state senator. So um, I've had interactions with her, you know, in the past. I've, I've seen her record. I, I know um, what type of public servant she is. And so um, that really drew me towards, you know, working for someone like her. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, like, I just really wanted to to be represented by someone um, different. And so um, that's that's kind of why, you know, it, it pushed me to, to work for um, Jill Shoup's campaign. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that with us. You also mentioned as a field organizer, you uh, organize a lot of virtual events. So how was engagement with volunteers in the virtual environment? Yeah, I mean, um, to be honest, I mean, I haven't worked as a field organizer, you know, before. Um, so I, I don't know how it compares to, to in-person events. I, I will say, I think, it, you know, it is it is difficult to keep people involved and to keep people enthusiastic um, on a campaign while you know everything's virtual uh, I had been working with some of these volunteers for like three or four months and I had never met any of them in person um, I, I the first time I met one of my volunteers which I, one of my super volunteers who I'd been working with for like months I the first thing I noticed was she was so much shorter than I expected because uh, because on the camera like you can't really tell and it's not like um, you know you're really able to to see what what the people are actually like and so it, it is difficult um to to try to keep people engaged and, and people involved when um you know people are just kind of sitting in front of their computer screen at home by themselves um while they're volunteering and especially if you know it's just making phone calls and they're not having such a great time so we definitely did have difficulty um keeping people engaged i think you know we tried our best to to do like zoom happy hours with our volunteers and like hold meetings where we just like chatted and and discussed like the issues and and stuff like that. That that was one of our strategies to try to keep people engaged. But in a, in a virtual world, it it definitely is difficult unless people you know are really really motivated by themselves. Yeah, this campaign cycle. That's a lot of what we've heard um, on both sides. 
So tell us about election night for you, because that must have also been a little different. Um, what was it like? How did it feel to be on the campaign? Yeah, um, I, I mean, election night was obviously disappointing for us because because I mean, it was disappointing for a lot of Democratic um, congressional candidates, um, you know, across um, the country. I, it definitely was was pretty disappointing. I um, spent um, uh, election night uh, with my coworkers in person. Um, we had uh, this massive con- conference room, so um, we were able to um, just like sit and um, socially distance and wear masks inside. But um, uh, we spent that time together. Um, it, it was pretty early uh, in the night when um, like we got some like pretty bad news that like in one of the the precincts, like we were not getting the votes um, we expected. Um, and so that kind of just like drove the mood down um, and especially when it was like finally called, which was like a couple hours after polls closed. So I think a lot of us were disappointed. I think at the same time, um, at least for on our campaign, uh, even though we lost, I think um, we were really, really also interested in the presidential race. I, I think that was just kind of on all of our minds. Um, and so seeing Biden, um, you know, take a lot of states um, on election night was was really good news and um, made us excited at the same time. So uh, I think it was definitely a mix um, of, of just kind of disappointment, but also excitement for for the other races that were happening across the country. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. So what were some of the biggest takeaways about politics that you gained from your experience on the campaign? <laughs> biggest takeaways about politics. Uh, you know, a lot of people like yard signs, um, but yard signs don't do anything. <laughs> um, I think, I think, well, I think that's just true for, for any field organizer, but, um, you know, volunteers and, and people who, you know, want to get engaged, um, don't want to get engaged in the ways that you want them to get engaged. I think um, it's difficult to, to really build, um, you know, a, a strong volunteer base um, when things are virtual and when um, you're only doing phone banking and, um, you know, it, people are, are sick and tired of phone calls. Um, it, it really is difficult to, to build um, a, a strong volunteer base and, and to, to build engagement with a campaign in, in a virtual world. Um, at the same time, I think we did. Um, like we, we made thousands upon thousands of phone calls. I think our text program like made like 10 million texts or something like that. Um, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, and I, I mean, we spoke with tons of volunteers. We spoke with a lot of people who are really interested in, um, uh, in supporting Jill and also people that weren't. Um, and so I think, um, you know, even though things were difficult and we like had a major roadblock in, in terms of, of a pandemic going on, I think that, um, you know, it really is possible to engage and, and um, to, to speak with the district about the issues and about, um, you know, politics um, in a virtual world. So, um, you know, I, I was uh, uh, definitely disappointed that all of my volunteers were more interested in yard signs than, um, you know, speaking with other voters. But I think we did speak with a lot of voters and I think it was, um, you know, a really great experience and um, important to me to, to try to flip my, my home district. That's great. Um, so one last question we have for you is what was your favorite memory from the campaign trail? What was my favorite memory? Um, I will say, I think my favorite memory, uh, was, um, it had to be like actually like meeting, um, Jill Shoup in, in person. Um, she invited a couple of our field staff, um, to have like a, 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 a this was like late in the summer, like to have a, a barbecue at, um, her house. Um, so we were like in her backyard. Um, and she was just so down to earth. I, I mean, she's one of the few like democratic state senators in, um, Missouri. Um, uh, so 
she has a lot of thoughts and a lot of experience um, working in politics and, and public service and, and not having, um, you know, a, a strong majority, not like struggling to get bills passed, like uh, definitely a lot of frustration. And I think she aired a lot of that um, when, when we were talking to her about, you know, her role in the state legislature. Um, at the same time, <laughs> she kind of reminds me of like my friend's Jewish mother. Uh, she is like very, very kind, very, very sweet, um, like super uh, like uh, and um, you know, su super interesting because because of her role. Um, and so um, it was it was really fun to to meet her in person. She also is shorter than I expected, um, but um, it was also fun to to meet uh, the other field staff, people that had been working with for for a couple of months and hadn't met in person either. So um, so yeah, it was it was. I definitely think that you know, despite things being virtual, we were still able to to make connections together um, as as a staff. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit down with us and share some of your memories um, and experiences from the campaign. Thank you so much for having me. Now let's travel to South Carolina, geographically and objectively inferior to North Carolina. Full disclosure, Robin is a proud resident of North Carolina, so we put up with her state pride. Anyway, let's tune in to Alex Mazeo, who worked on a congressional campaign in South Carolina. I'm a junior in the college studying government. Uh, I'm from here in South Carolina's first congressional district uh, from the town of Beaufort, a lovely place. Um, I worked as a field director for Beaufort County for Nancy Mace's successful congressional campaign. It was one of the many Republican seats that we managed to flip. So thankfully, uh, She'll be joining many other Republican women in this as a freshman for this next uh, congressional class. And it, overall, it was a great experience, and I'd love to talk to you more about it. Great. Um, so why don't you get into a little bit more about the type of work you did? Um, tell us about South Carolina and that district in particular. Yeah, no, I got to know Nancy pretty well for uh, driving her around the district, especially a lot of her events. Uh, but... A thing I really think I made the biggest difference doing was organizing teams of paid and unpaid door knockers. I think that just having someone come to your door uh, as an ambassador for the campaign and for Republican candidates in general was a huge help. We took necessary precautions. We wore masks. We stayed six feet back when people came to the door. And I think that actually did make a huge difference in races all over the country in Florida. I don't think the Biden campaign had much of any door knocking operation and the Trump campaign did an excellent job of that. And likewise, in the South Carolina's first congressional district, we had teams of door knockers out basically for three months before the actual election. I think that made a huge difference. Certainly. Yeah. Um, and so you worked um, obviously in, in South Carolina, which had, in addition to um, a very contentious presidential race. The Senate race there was, was obviously in the national spotlight. Um, what was it like both working with uh, the candidate staff and talking to voters in an area that was just so saturated with um, political action this cycle? So for the actual messaging, um, we very much had to toe a line between like, yes, this is a Republican conservative district, right? And Nancy worked on the Trump campaign. She supports the president. But in some areas like Charleston, where you have the more, I guess some people might call them rhino Republicans who 
maybe would vote for Jamie Harrison, Nancy Mace, but they don't want to see a congressional candidate who's too tied in with Trump, which Nancy, like I said, she supports the president 100 uh, percent. But, you know, we wanted to make sure that the voters understood that they're voting for Nancy, right? They're voting for someone who's going to represent the low country and its values, uh, not just another Republican candidate. So we tried to, in places like where I live, which is more red leaning, um, you know, very much hit up the whole Trump angle, helps turn out, turn out the base. But we very much had to tailor our messaging depending on the area. That's really interesting. Um, so taking a step back for a moment, what drew you to work on the specific campaign? I'm a pretty diehard Republican. So the fact that our district, which, you know, has been a Republican district for the longest time, went blue in 2018, just shocked me and horrified me. So I saw it as me needing to right that wrong. And you know, there are a lot of reasons why it went blue then. Uh, there was a contentious Republican primary, uh, which was resulted in Mark Sanford losing uh, his seat despite, despite being the incumbent to a primary challenger um, and a bunch of other factors. So I felt like I had to do something to uh, help give the low country the representation it deserved. And I thought Nancy was the best candidate to do that. So clearly you were fired up about getting involved in this um campaign, but tell us about um, election night for you. I know that it was a, a close race, especially on that first um, day. So it might have been election night or was it election few days? What was watching the results come in for you like? So at least for the congressional uh, side of things, I knew fairly early on that the results were pretty good, especially in areas like where I was working in, uh, like Beaufort County and Berkeley County and areas outside of Charleston. Charleston, we just had to get like, you know, in the mid to high 40s and we'd be okay. But we did very well in those other areas. And I knew the numbers were pretty good. Like I, you know, information sort of like leaking down. I was pretty confident about that, at least on election night. Uh, Joe Cunningham, I can't say that was the case throughout the entire election. Joe Cunningham was, of course, the incumbent. He did a lot of advise. He, this is the most expensive uh, congressional race in South Carolina's history. So uh, he had a huge war chest and a lot of people were worried that he was spending a lot of money very early on in the election cycle. So, uh, so Nancy winning was by no means a given, but it was the result of a lot of hard work on you know, the staff's part and especially Mara. So kudos to them. Uh, and we did, an, I think, a good job. Yeah. So, so when did you, um, I mean, cer certainly the, uh, the presidential election sort of dragged on and on the results, but when did you know that Nancy Mace had it in the bag and that she was going to be representing your district? Basically the next morning, um, uh, Joe Cunningham didn't concede for like another week, but it, it was by a good enough margin, nowhere close to triggering a recount, uh, so we were pretty confident at that point. Uh, I, I knew the morning after Nancy declared victory uh, the morning after. Um, so what were some of the biggest takeaways about politics in general that you gained um, from working on this campaign? So 
I, I've talked a lot about the Nancy staff, right, which was hugely important in carrying us across the finish line. We also had a lot of help from, you know, the state Republican Party, who I worked with closely, and, you know, the Beaver County Republican Party and all these different county Republican parties and all these different organizations. It's very much like a cake. You know, it's, it's, it's tiered. You know, you have your grassroots operation and your more local people who are often a lot more organized, actually, than some of the people at the top. So uh, I was shocked by some of the grassroots enthusiasm we had. And a lot of it came from the local Republican Party chapters. So I think that was a huge help. Right on. And so you know, our, our last question for you here, um, thank you for taking the time to sit down with us, um, is that politics is data and politics is also personal. Um, you know, it was your home state that you were working in, a very close race. Um, so what's a favorite memory that you have from the campaign trail that either encapsulates what politics means to you or what this particular race meant to you? Okay, so this is a bit of a funny memory, but Nancy had a debate versus Joe Cunningham uh, at the University of South Carolina Beaufort campus, uh, right where I live. And basically, we got a bunch of uh, people to get together for a sine wave, about 20, 30 people to be outside the debate, you know, there to greet her. And they were also there to greet Joe Cunningham too. He had like three or four people. So I actually, I helped to embarrass a congressman because he walked in, like Nancy stopped. She said hi to everyone. Joe Cunningham was like going through the back exit. You know, that, that was just, I, I think at that point, it was more clear that Nancy was going to win. Uh, that was just hugely embarrassing for him. And I just don't think, at, at that point, I, I think it should have been clear that his ground game and the ground game of Democrats in our area was basically non-existent. Well, yeah. um, Alex, you know, thank you so much for joining us. I don't know if there's any last parting wisdom you want to lay on us before we end the interview. Well, I guess this is for the Republican listeners that were staring down four years of a Biden presidency. You know, like, I, I wanted Trump to win very badly. So, of course, like many people, I was disappointed. But I, I guess we have to count our blessings that you know, we have a conservative majority in the Supreme Court. We have a huge incoming freshman class in Congress. And many people like Lindsey Graham and uh, retain their Senate seats. So hopefully we can just make Joe Biden the lame duck president. Hopefully we can exert some leverage on what gets done in the next four years. But I think that comes with consistent engagement and uh, we can't rest on our laurels. Um, we've got to really put pressure on people like Joe Biden and we've got to do that by winning more races. Um, and I hope Georgia, which I was down in Georgia a few days ago, I hope they make the right decision and vote for Loeffler and Purdue. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Uh, it's my pleasure. I hate the pizza in Detroit, but I don't know Zachy. I'm sure he's great, and you'll enjoy this next interview. Let's travel north to see how Zachy joined the Michigan Democratic Party to flip the mitten. Yeah, so um, I am currently a senior in the School of Foreign Service. Um, I am from Chevy Chase, Maryland. 
And this past semester, I uh, was working as a field organizer on the One Campaign for Michigan, which was the Michigan Democratic Party's coordinated campaign. Uh, so working to elect Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, re-elect Gary Peters to the United States Senate, and then elect Democrats up and down the ballot. All right, amazing. And could you tell us a little bit more about the One Campaign and the specific work you did as an organizer? Yeah, so... So a lot of the work that I was doing was recruiting folks to volunteer for the campaign. So my organizing turf was uh, part of the east side of Detroit. And I spent a lot of my days just calling folks, making connections, uh, creating relationships to uh, try and just engage the city of Detroit in the campaign and in the um, fight to elect uh, Joe and Kamala to the White House. Great. Um, so what drew you to work in Michigan and kind of as a follow up, what was it like to work in a swing state that was such an important part of this election cycle? Yeah. So working in Michigan was a fantastic time. Um, I uh, wanted to work in Michigan uh, because I knew a few people who had already been hired on the campaign. Um, I the way I kind of got into the campaign was I like sent out applications to every single uh, swing state, every single state party that I could find that had job applications posted on their websites. Um, Michigan was just kind of where I landed and I was really happy to end up there. Um, moving to a swing state was super interesting. Um, while I was organizing in Detroit, I was actually living in a rather red suburb uh, outside of uh, the city. And so like coming from a very blue state like Maryland and going into a very a more swingy area was a, a very new experience for me, but I was really grateful to kind of learn about a new part of the country and uh, kind of like just get exposure to those different viewpoints. That's really cool. Um, so something that our listeners love to hear is just that behind the scenes, um, kind of what's it like for political operatives um, on election night. So tell us a little bit about your election night um, and the campaign, I guess. What was it like? What were you feeling? Uh, what was the vibe in general? Yeah, so um, on election night, um, so I, during the last four days of the campaign, which we call Get Out the Vote, um, I was a staging location director for one of our canvases. So that means that I was uh, just kind of getting, meeting, like greeting uh, canvassers as they showed up to the location, uh, giving them their list where they were going to be knocking doors, and then uh, training them on what they needed to do to canvass successfully during a pandemic. Um, after uh, our last shift of the day on uh, November 3rd ended, I got sent to a few different polling locations to do something that we called line management, which is basically like handing out water bottles, hand warmers, and granola bars to people standing in line just to make sure that they would be comfortable while they stood in line uh, and that they wouldn't leave uh, the line after the polls closed. So I was actually doing line management until around midnight on election night. So uh, I was at a uh, polling center that wasn't like a normal polling center. It was like a same day registration polling center. And so the line took a lot longer to move. Um, but I was there until about midnight. And then when I got back to my car, my car battery had died. Um, <laughs> so I had to like sit around in, in the parking lot of this place um, until like 1.30. Uh, and then after that, I was pretty wiped out. So I stopped briefly at my um, supervisor's house where my team was kind of uh, watching the results come in. And I was frankly the only person who was like, guys, this is going to be okay. 
like the results weren't looking pretty for us at that moment. Um, but I was just like trying to remind my team that like, Hey, we've been preparing for this. Uh, we've been preparing to have to wait for the results for a long time now. It's too early to be freaking out. And, um, I was right. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for sharing that crazy story with us. Election cycle this year, um, definitely was quite a roller coaster. Uh, so what were some of the biggest takeaways about politics that you gained from your experience on the campaign in Michigan? I would say that politics is a lot about just connecting with communities um, and making sure that you kind of understand how different communities work and what matters to different communities. I would say uh, like the best way to do that is just to rely on your field team. Field organizers like me and my coworkers were in contact with voters and volunteers every single day. And uh, we had some good insights on kind of what was going on in Detroit and in Michigan. Um, and just making those connections is really key to having a successful campaign. Yeah, for sure. Um, so our last question for you today is, what was your favorite memory from the campaign trail? Um, I would have to say um, it was on election day. Uh, so at my staging location, my campus staging location, um, I actually had the Lieutenant Governor of Michigan uh, come to speak to some of our volunteers before they got started. It was our biggest launch. We had something like 50 volunteers uh, starting at one time. So me and my team were kind of like all over the place trying to get everyone checked in and go through all the health and safety things with everyone in time to hear the Lieutenant Governor speak. Um, but the Lieutenant Governor of Michigan and the Governor of Michigan are both just super cool people. And so it was really great to get to meet him and get to hear from him. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say that was definitely my highlight. All right, amazing. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with us briefly and sharing with us your experiences in Michigan. It was such a great experience for us to hear about. You're lucky to hear this next interview since Sam almost lost our recording of our wonderful conversation with Ryan Costley. But importantly, I found it. So let's see what Ryan was up to on the Democratic Coordinated Campaign in Michigan. My name's Ryan Costley. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, that's where I am right now. Um, I am in the SFS. Um, I will be a junior in the spring. I took this past semester off to work on the campaign. So Graduation date's a little a little up in the air. Um, gonna have a bit of an unconventional schedule. I don't think I'm alone in that, given coronavirus and everything going on. Um, yeah, and, and this fall I was I was working for the uh, the Michigan coordinated campaign. Um, so working for the Biden Harris ticket, um, and as well as working to elect uh, Senator Gary Peters um, for Michigan. So um, you know, was a field organizer, so a lot of voter outreach and everything. It was a it was a good experience and definitely a good. Um, a good break from school. That's really cool. Um, so what drew you to work in Michigan and what was it like to work in such a swing state during this yeah. election cycle? So, so my whole family is, is originally from Michigan. Um, it's where I was born. Um, both my parents, they met in college at the university of Michigan. Um, my, my cousins and aunt and uncle still live there. So it was a state that I, I have a lot of deep roots in and still travel to frequently. Um, and I also thought that, that, you know, going into the cycle when I was trying to think about what states I wanted to apply to work in, what, what drew me to Michigan was, was really the fact, was, was both my, my own personal connections, but also not just the electoral importance of it, but also the fact that I think Michigan is a state that sort of represents the country pretty well. Um, it's got, you know, big cities, small towns, uh, a lot of religious diversity, a lot of 
you know, racial diversity as well. It's got, you know, rural farm areas as well as a lot of manufacturing, some, some big college towns. Um, I thought that, you know, if, if the democratic ticket could, could win the state of Michigan back that we would have a, we would have a good chance of, of, uh, removing Donald Trump as president. So that was a big deal. Totally. Yeah. And so, so you, you mentioned, um, sort of the, the different, uh, uh, backgrounds that you were you were campaigning to, and especially in a in a state like Michigan, that's so much in the eye of the country. Um, how do you take you know wh- what do you say to people's to, on people's doorstep, and does your message change based on the town you're in or based on um, the type of event that you're running? Tell us about how you how you brought your message to the different folks that you were talking to. Yeah, I, I think I think so. So so almost all of my work was um, was virtual, so it was mostly mostly talking on the phone with people, and you know depending on which state we're. Uh, which part of the state we were calling into. So, so my region, I was in, I was in the middle of the state. Um, so is it, you know, an older community, more rural. Um, and, and you're really, you're really trying to, the key to, I think, organizing overall is, is being able to listen to folks about what matters to them because, um, you know, I, we, I, we, I go to Georgetown on the East coast. I, I grew up in a major city and I, I've never lived in a really small town. So the, those first couple of weeks was really important to just you know, ask people what issues are important to them and why they care about the election. And you'll hear different things, right? I think it, it, it was less about whatever, you know, outrage the president did in the week past and more about, you know, the fact that, you know, these towns have seen manufacturing jobs decline over, over a course of decades and their local schools aren't funded the same way. So you're, you're really focusing on engaging and listening with people and, and asking them what matters to them. Um, and trying to convince them both to support Democrats, but also to get involved if they're already on your campaign. And, um, you know, I think that volunteer recruitment is really one of the most important things that we do because um, there's only so much that staffers can do um, to to get the voter outreach we need to. It, volunteers have to get involved in the process. So if we can listen to folks, empower them, um, and allow them to go have genuine connections with their own community, I think that was, that was the recipe for success, both in Michigan and, and around the country this year. Sure. And so you worked specifically on a coordinated campaign, right? So tell us what's that like? Um, How does that differ than a single candidate campaign? Um, Just both logistically and what is it like rolling a bunch of candidates into one? Absolutely. Yeah. So so, so coordinated campaigns are quite cool. um, And they're, I think, frequently misunderstood, unfortunately. Um, So, you know, around the time that Joe Biden became the nominee or the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party this year in uh, in mid March, early April. Um, I'm going to be vague on the dates because some people would differ with me about when when you could actually call him the presumptive nominee. Um, it, the the work started where the party was basically consolidating um, the structure such that everything was streamlined. It sort of became one apparatus. Um, you know. Uh, Someone named Mary Beth Cahill became CEO of the Democratic National Committee. She she managed John Kerry's campaign. Um, there was some turnover at the DNC, um, and and I think what a, what a coordinated campaign does is it combines the work that has been going on before the general election between all the primary candidates, all the local candidates, and the state party itself into sort of one streamline. Um, apparatus, right? So so no longer does the Gary Peters for Senate campaign. Um, have to recruit their own volunteers separately than, uh, you know, Biden for president. It just becomes, you know, the Michigan Democrats are recruiting it. And when you when you're volunteering, you're going to volunteer for, you know, you're trying to convince people to vote for Joe Biden for president, Kamala Harris for vice president, Gary Peters for Senate, 
Um, if you were in, you know, a swing district, maybe Alyssa Slotkin or Haley Stevens for, um, for us Congress. Um, so that's sort of how it works. It becomes one apparatus. And what that allows you to do is it allows, uh, the state parties to employ the field staff. So I was officially employed by the Michigan democratic party. Um, but although, you know, all staff calls and everything you're, you're working with the Biden campaign very closely. Um, so it's sort of your, it's not that you're, straddling a line between the state party and the campaign. It's just that it sort of becomes one cohesive unit. Um, and that just increases efficiency in terms of outreach. Um, it allows the, the top brass of the campaign to better allocate resources effectively um, and, and really make sure that the party is sort of all on the same page um, down the stretch to November. Um, and I think that's a, a thing that really worked well this year. Um, and, you know, hopefully... 2022, 2024, hopefully we're post COVID and um, the the streamlined process when you're not doing most of it in a virtual environment, which is what uh, I think the top leadership was faced with between between May and June this year when, when it all really kind of ramped up. For sure, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess, what was election night that like for you um, having those um, campaigns together? What was it like for like, I guess each of the separate campaigns and like the general vibe as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, election night week was, was very long. Um, I think that, so, so we were focused on Michigan. Um, we weren't, there wasn't too much crossover between States at the end. And, you know, we were working on Michigan until polls were closed in Michigan. Um, and then there's a, there's a part of the upper peninsula of Michigan. that's actually in the central time zone. So 8 PM, most polls closed in Michigan, then sort of all the staff is transferred to sort of working on, uh, you know, th that last bit of the state that was in central time zone at 9 PM. And then we did do a little bit of, you know, hop on some calls for Arizona or Iowa or some other States at the very end. But, but by about 10 PM Eastern, we were sort of done for the night. Um, and, uh, by, by that time, it sort of had become clear that um, Florida was called by that point for uh, President Trump and North Carolina was was not looking great. So we knew that we were probably in for a long night because we like we were prepared for how long the, the ballot counting was going to take. Um, we had we had been emphasizing absentee ballots for weeks. So we knew that the state of Michigan was going to count those absentee ballots later, uh, which means we probably wouldn't know there. Um but it wasn't, it wasn't like the campaigns had different priorities. It was all a streamlined process. Um, we were in constant communication with our uh, incredible top field leadership in Michigan, who was in constant communication with the national organizing staff for Biden, who was, uh, you know, talking to Jenna Malley, Dillon, campaign manager and um, other stuff. So it was, it was all sort of a streamlined effort. And I don't think we were different as a state. Um, and then we were sort of for the next couple of days, we were kind of in a holding pattern. We had some meetings, um, we had a, you know, a celebratory phone call when Michigan was called for, for the president-elect um, sometime mid-afternoon Wednesday. Um, and then I think like everyone else in the country after Michigan was called, we were, you know, staring at TV screens and waiting for, for 72 more hours for, for Pennsylvania to finally, uh, to finally drop. Um, I don't think I was breathing easily until president-elect Biden took the, took the lead in, in Pennsylvania and Georgia on, on Friday morning. I don't think that was, I think I'd say that was probably when my blood pressure finally went down a little bit. Um, but, but it was, it was a very, it was a very long week is, is really the only way to describe it. So you were out there in the field talking to folks in one of the most competitive States in the country and one of the most 
uh, consequential elections in one of the most contentious elections, probably, uh, you know, in recent memory. So what are some of the biggest takeaways that uh, you gained about politics, about where this country is going from your work in the field, talking to folks in the campaign? Yeah, um, I, I think that the biggest the, the biggest takeaway is how much um, the work itself matters. Um, I think it's easy for some people uh, to discount the the field work and just the the raw effort of of talking to voters and knocking on doors and making phone calls. But um, you know, I I can't tell you how many people I talk to that you know, maybe we're planning to vote for Biden, but didn't know anything about Gary Peters and might have left that Senate race blank had me or a volunteer not uh, not had a conversation with them. Um, and, you know, Senator Peters won in a really close race. Um, and it's, it's essentially a collective action thing. So I, my biggest takeaway is just how much the work matters. And one thing that I hope has come out of the last four years is that that type of activism and that type of volunteer work and that energy will, will continue. Um, and I hope that as a party, um, we keep up that energy going into the 22 midterms and the 24 election and that, and that we have the same intensity that we had to remove Donald Trump to sort of build on the progress that hopefully we can make in the next couple of years. Um, and then, and then the biggest takeaway also is that, you know, it, it, it's, the, the old phrase that all politics is local, I, I think is true. Um, but, but I do think all politics is national in some way. Um, it, it's sort of a both and. It's not necessarily one or the other. There, there are definitely a good mix of people that were really only focused on on Donald Trump, and that was their reason for existence. But then you got you also got people who were from very different places. So you have to be willing to, to sort of activate people based on what what is most important to them. Great. Um, so we just have one last question for you today, and that's what's your favorite memory from the campaign trail? Favorite memory. Um, so probably mid-September, we went through uh, get out the vote training um, where we sort of changed the structure of our outreach um, that was less sort of uh, we were shifting away a little bit from persuading people to support our candidates and more just how do we turn out as many people as possible? How do we get to the right number in the right counties to, to win the state? Um, and, and during that training, um, we went, we, we had a video sort of collected a, a whole bunch of pictures from meetings and, uh, people that were knocking on doors all the way back in March before the pandemic really hit, um, to a compilation of every, every staff member's tweets from the, the whole time. And it was just a really cool video to see the team, um, that was mostly virtual. Um, it, it felt like a, like a big family almost. And it felt like really like we were a part of, you know, working and there were, you know, more than 150 staffers in Michigan. So it was, it was good to feel that connection with people. And our, and our field, our field director gave sort of a, a pep talk that night. We were about 40, 43, 44 days out from the election um, about, you know, her memories of having to hug her volunteers when she was an organizer uh, in Missouri in 2016, um, as it became clear that, that Trump was going to win. Um, and, you know, working for four years in the buildup to like not feel that again. Um, and, and it just, it was a really inspiring moment to sort of, it was sort of, you know, in the, in the 12 hour days, you sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture about how much effort has gone into this. And it's easy to get caught up in how many phone calls have I made today? How many people have I reached? How many volunteer shifts have I recruited? Um, but it was nice that one day to really zoom out just a little bit more than a month away um, and really say, 
you know what, there's, there's a reason we're all doing this. Um, there's a reason that this work is important and, um, and that keeping sight of that is what's going to allow us to all stay, you know, mentally sane enough to do the work down the stretch, um, to, to win the election. And then the next 40 days were not obviously, uh, easy. A lot of, a lot of stuff happened in terms of the campaign and the national news and everything. But, but I think keeping sight of the, the goal, um, and, and that moment was just a great memory looking back on it. And it really sort of defined, defined the work for me. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us on the pod. It's great to get uh, some more eyes and ears from Michigan as we look back on the yeah. 2020 election. Awesome. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you, Grace. Really appreciate you guys. We're not in Michigan anymore. We're in Kansas. Okay, Sam. Anyways, let's see what Rebecca did on some local level campaigns. My name is Rebecca Hollister. I'm a senior at Georgetown. Um, I'm double majoring in political economy and math. And uh, last semester, I was a campaign manager for two state house races uh, in Leavenworth, Kansas. All right, amazing. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about where you worked uh, specifically in the campaign and what type of work you did? I was, for both campaigns, the only paid staffer, actually, um, because they were, uh, you know, small small budget campaigns um the the goal target was about forty thousand dollars uh for both campaigns so it's really it wasn't enough to hire too many people um so it was basically me and some other key volunteers um so i handled um field operations for the campaigns i handled um the communications aspect. So I handled social media, I handled media relations uh, with, you know, um, newspapers and such. Um, I handled like financial um, things in the sense of buying products and making sure that we had all of our like uh, walk cards, um, making sure our mailers were in order, digital advertisements, et cetera. Um, and then I also handled events and uh, just general messaging direction of the campaign. So it, it was a lot. <laughs> I, um, I did a lot for both campaigns. Um, and so that, that describes a little bit of what I did. That's awesome. Um, what drew you to work on those specific campaigns? Was it um, in your area or is it more of like you're just really interested in the type of work and being able to manage all those different things? Yeah, so I live in Leavenworth, so it was my area, um, and I have I've been invested in the politics of Leavenworth for quite a while now. Um, so actually, they called me and asked me to do it. Um, one of them asked me back in March, as soon as I got back from fleeing Georgetown's campus when we were all thrown out. Um, and so one called me right after that, and then the other um, contacted me in May. And uh, I, you know, these these districts, it is Kansas, so, um, and these were Democratic individuals, so uh, I knew it was going to be a challenge. However, these districts have been won by Democrats in the past, so I was like, we can definitely do this. Um, and I was really drawn to both individuals because they were hardworking, and both of them were first-time um, well, one of them was a first-time candidate, totally, had never run for anything before. And the other one was the mayor of the town, so had never run anything beyond the city level before. Um, so I was just really drawn to both of their drives to improve things for the state. And so that's why I said yes to both. 
um, because I just, I love them both. I probably, um, normally I probably only would have done one, um, but the, I was just so drawn to um, their work and like the potential of these seats that uh, it drew me to do both for sure. Yeah, that's incredible to hear. So what do you see as the significance of local races? Very significant. The stakes were very high. Um, Kansas, we were trying to break Republicans. I mean, this is all from a Democratic perspective, and then I can talk a little bit about, in general, the significance of local races. But from, from our perspective, um, you know, the supermajority was on the line, the Republican supermajority in the state house. So we could have broken that. Unfortunately, that did not happen statewide. Um, but we were we were really looking to do that and do things like pass Medicaid expansion. And uh, we were looking to, this was, I guess, not really a democratic issue, but um, you know, Leavenworth is a community of a lot of veterans because we have Fort Leavenworth right next to us. And so we were looking to build them a new veterans home, a veterans association. So the stakes were very high in terms of local issues, especially during the pandemic. You know, Leavenworth um, was, suffering like, like any other um, town in the country, but um, really trying to win these races to help these people economically was definitely the goal. Um, in general, I think people don't always understand the impact of local races. You know, obviously what happens at the national level does affect all of us, but it, it takes a while to affect people. Um, and also it's harder to see that in day-to-day in -day life. Whereas locally um, and at the state level, there are so many things that affect us each and every day. It affects the roads we drive on, the businesses we can go to, the state taxes we pay, the schools that kids go to. I mean, just at the state level, there's so much that is in people's daily lives that they don't know about. So um, to me, these races were just as important. Um, well, maybe not just as important as the presidential, but very close, <laughs> at least for me. Um, I definitely treated them with um, a very high importance. And I think everyone should treat uh, local races that way. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you talked about this disparity between people being really focused on that national level presidential race, which was, of course, very important. But at the same time, as someone who did manage the comms and the press and the media for these campaigns, what was it like balancing those two and, and really getting enough coverage and attention um, for your candidates? Very difficult this year. It was very difficult, um, especially because in Kansas, um, you know, Democrats do try and pull away from national attention. It does not help us to align nationally with some, some Democrats. So um, we were constantly fighting to pull away from the national focus. Um, and it was extraordinarily difficult. Um, and by the way, spoiler alert, both my candidates lost. So um, in the end, uh, I think we were, I think that was one of our biggest issues that we could not escape the polarizing tide that was going on nationally. We could not get people to understand that they were electing in these local races in particular, a person and not um, just a party. Um, you know, in local races, you can actually meet the candidate. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You can act like they're a member of your community. You know, Joe Biden doesn't live in Leavenworth, but my candidates did. And so I think we really tried to nail that home. We tried to say, 
whatever policies that these people are going to choose is also going to affect them because they're a member of the community. So pay attention to local races. But it was so hard. I mean, the everyone was so polarized um, at a national level. And I mean, the news talked about it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which is very understandable. But when when a community of people are listening to that constantly, it was very hard to not be overshadowed by the national context. And I think that in the end, we were very overshadowed by that. Um, so it, it was it, that was one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. So going off of your response, tell us a little bit about election night for you and the campaign. What was it like and how did you feel? Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, it was certainly I let me see going into it. Well, first of all, election day is really weird in general, not just election night, um, because I woke up at, you know, eight o'clock, but there was really nothing to do at that point because um, we obviously were going to call people, um, but it was too early at that point. So I just kind of sat around and twiddled my thumbs for a little while. And then um, when it hit like 10 o'clock, I could really start hitting the phones. And so basically I just made phone calls the whole day, but um, it felt very anticlimactic. Obviously, You're just spending the day calling people, reminding people to vote. Um, especially with these local races, I think people often picture like a war room or like uh, a bunch of screens everywhere and people being frantic. But that's not really how it was because at that point, um, I mean, early voting had already been happening. So it's kind of just another day, um, except you're really still driving home, going to the polls. Um, and so I did that for about eight hours and then I, uh, you know, came back and ate something and, you know, got myself ready for the, the, um, the, I don't want to say parties because it was, you know, a pandemic. Um, we did, however, have watch events. Um, everyone was masked, although I will say, um, Kansas individuals, I think take it a little less seriously than other individuals. So there were definitely a good amount of people at those watch events. Um, yeah, so we, and you know, there's no, it's not on TV, like the results don't come in live on TV, it's just a website. So we put up a projector and we were just refreshing the website. Um, going into it, I felt like one of my candidates would win, and I felt like one of them would not. Um, in the end, both of them did not. And we found that out at about 9.30, so really wasn't that late. Um, that it took all the results to come in. And I was in shock. Um, I really thought at least one of them would win. And also the numbers were not um, anywhere what we thought they would be. So that was also very surprising. Um, Democrats across Kansas sort of got trounced across the whole state. It wasn't just Leavenworth. Um, and I found that out later. I didn't quite know that um, on election night, but it, it was very shocking. Um, I was pretty upset and I kind of just came home and went to bed after saying goodbye. I mean, there's, there wasn't a whole lot else to be done. Um, it was really hard to, to process those feelings. I think now looking back, I'm very proud of the work that we've done. I think that even if your candidate loses, the fact that you were out there, like 
uh, spreading around these ideas, these really important concepts, getting people to think about things like people who don't have access to health care and, um, you know, our economy and our roads. The fact that we were even out there talking about it, I think, improved the world. So even if we couldn't improve our town in the way we wanted to, we improved it just by bringing these issues up. So that's where I'm at now. But on election night, I'm not going to lie, I was absolutely devastated. Um, and it took a few days to sink into. So I, that that was a rough week. Um, and so I think that but my candidates, surprisingly, I think were um, they were still devastated. But, you know, they they were older adults. So I think they were like, you know, like, we'll keep working. But um, I think they were exhausted by the campaign. So um I'm sure it was like 90% sadness and 10% relief maybe that it's just, it's over. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what election night was like for me. Um, not necessarily the ending I wanted, but that happens. Um, what were some of the biggest takeaways? I know you mentioned um, just local politics and that being very significant um, that you just gained from your experience on the campaign. Yeah, um, I think that definitely we... I think any campaign needs to do more to reach out to unaffiliated voters or independent voters. Um, I think that talking to people, I realized just how many sort of, um, I mean, especially at Georgetown, it's very easy to think everyone cares about politics, um, but that's not true. You have to give them a reason to care most of the time. And a lot of people are just very fed up with, um, the polarization. So I think that we need to do more. Everyone needs to do more to reach ordinary people and to describe to them what this means and how it will affect them. Um, personally, for myself, I think that I realized that um, it's okay to ask for help. That's one of my takeaways that sort of doesn't have anything to do with politics, but has to do with my work on there because it was really, really difficult to do all this by myself. Um, and I, I think I, at times, bit off more than I could chew. I was still full-time at Georgetown as well. So uh, I think I definitely personally had to learn to um, ask for help. And then, I mean, another takeaway, I think, for me was that, I mean, these people became my family, you know? These people really that I worked with truly are going to stay with me for the rest of my life. So I think that in terms of the loss, I can always remind myself just how hard people will work for something they believe in. And that was incredible to see firsthand and to uh, be able to work with people who who feel that way. So those are just a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And so with our last question, we'd love to know uh, what your favorite memory was from the campaign trail. Um, you know, this campaign was very different because of um, the pandemic. So usually I think my favorite, and I've worked on campaigns before. Usually there's like parties where everyone comes together that didn't happen. So I think that part of the challenge of coming up with a favorite memory is that I don't think there was any one memory that encompassed everything I loved about it. Um, because everyone still had to be a part, but I think probably my favorite memories were when I would just canvas with the candidates. Um, and just hear them tell other people and convince other people to vote for them based on what they believed in. And just being able to 
you know, talk to others and, and watch them like talk to others. So I would say, yeah, those e- all those evenings I spent canvassing with the candidates probably mm-hmm. um, because it helped me learn a lot too. Um, you know, particularly if, if I ever want to run for office someday, or if I ever want to do this again, um, it, it helped me grow a lot. And it was just amazing to see local politics really manifest itself into just one-on-one conversations between like the candidate and the person. So I think that was really cool. Um, it's not very, it's a little anticlimactic, but like I said, um, it was a very different year of campaigning. So I think that would have to be my favorite memory. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was really awesome. And uh, thank you guys for doing this podcast to help tell these stories, because I think it's really important for other Hoyas to hear, too. Finally, let's say hello to our former Fly on the Wall comms director, Aida Ross, who worked in Arizona for the Biden campaign this past fall. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome back to the pod. For all of our new listeners who have yet to meet you, give us a quick Georgetown intro and tell us what campaign you worked on this cycle. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is very exciting and weird to be on the other side of the pod interview this time. Um, I'm a junior at Georgetown in the SFS studying international politics with a certificate in um, diplomatic studies. And this past semester, I worked on the Biden for President campaign in Arizona as a communications and digital assistant. And right before that in the summer, I was a digital intern on Mark Kelly's U.S. Senate race. Great. So, um, I mean, certainly communications in 2020 with the state of the race and also a presidential race during a global pandemic must have been uh, a time and a half. So tell us a little bit about the type of work you did navigating communications uh, in that sort of political environment? Yeah, it was wild. I think um, having your first ever campaign be completely virtual is a really weird experience because the people you're working with have done everything in person before and everyone's kind of adjusting. And so it was good and bad because on the bright side, I never had an in-person campaign experience. So this was all just normal to me. Um, And on the downside, obviously you can't like be in person meeting other people. Um, But I think one thing that was really exciting is we got to revolutionize, uh, to put it lightly, right, revolutionize the way that campaign communications happens on a completely digital space. Um, Because we weren't really doing in-person things on the Biden campaign, at least in Arizona, until kind of towards the end. Um, So on a day-to-day, I was on the comms side, helping with managing our press lists, um, writing press releases, and, you know, media advisories, um, getting in touch with press, helping to pitch stories. That was very exciting. Um, and then on the digital side, I was writing uh, content for our social media platforms, working with the coordinated campaigns to really get our message out. So a lot of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and leveraging those platforms. Yeah. For sure. Um, so a lot of eyes were on Arizona this cycle. It was definitely one of the most um, watched swing states. Um, what was it like on the ground, talking to voters? What were they feeling? Um, and what was the general messaging um, all about? It was really interesting and very different than I think several other states ran their programs because a Democrat hasn't won in Arizona in the presidential in literal decades. So it was all about, you know, kind of speaking to those voters who had a, had a loyalty to Republicans like John McCain or more moderate um, Democrats and Republicans alike. So it was very much trying to figure out, well, what issues are most important to them, not only this fall, but 
over the past couple of years. Um, and with COVID, obviously, all of the attention was on the COVID crisis, the way that Donald Trump has managed the crisis. What were people in Arizona feeling? How was their access to healthcare being changed by various, you know, healthcare policies? So yeah, the messaging on the ground was very much healthcare oriented. Um, Arizona, we love our small businesses. <laughs> we we really, you know, value local businesses and the way that local entrepreneurs, you know, work. Um, a lot of small businesses have gone under because of the pandemic and because of a lack of relief. And that's something honed in on like Joe Biden will have a plan for your small business to get back on track and we'll make sure that no more small businesses will have to close down and we'll make sure that your family gets the health and security you need because Arizona really suffered because of COVID especially you know during the summer it was such a hot spot so I would say those are the issues that mattered most um, and I feel like I'm kind of rambling here but the last thing I'll say is that focusing as well on tribal communities and Latino communities um, especially people in more rural areas who weren't getting access to the, to the support that they needed. That was something we really cared about and something that um, this campaign personally, I think did really well on is speaking to those voters directly and being like, hey, we really care about your voices. What issues matter to you and how can we listen to you? And that was not only through our organizing or when we were talking to voters, but also who we brought on our team and who was leading these efforts. For sure. Um... And you mentioned revolutionizing how campaigns um, communicate in a in a digital setting. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to what was gained and what was lost there. I mean, certainly we've seen Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of social media like that, giving the ability to connect with folks at a level that we've never been able to do before. But it's also come with uh, polarization, whether that's a, a, a symptom or a cause of our current political state. I'm curious what was gained and lost with the digital revolution in politics. Absolutely. I think that, you know, being at least my experience as a student at Georgetown and studying political science and you know, international relations, you're really looking at things in like a, a national or global scale. And something that I really learned on this campaign is that we really zoned in on local and direct communication. Um, and I think that's just like what campaigns do as a whole. But it was especially challenging to do that completely virtually. So it wasn't just about, you know, meeting voters where they are on Twitter or Facebook, because we did that. And, you know, Mark Kelly's campaign did an awesome Snapchat program, which was very different than a bunch of other campaigns too. But it was about, it was also about like, you know, hosting Zoom events that we couldn't maybe have hosted before. We could get people from all across the state together for one discussion on specifically education and tribal communities. We had Dr. Jill Biden come in for an education with local um, Arizona educators, you know, our teachers, our teachers, our parents, and, you know, they showed us tours of their home where their students, you know, their kids, their students were learning. And it was like, my student has a really terrible living environment because of COVID. Like they can't study the way that they used to. It's really difficult for them. And we were able to get that insight that I think, you know, if we were doing an in-person event, how are we going to get a video of someone's home, right? Like that's just, that's kind of weird. So I think that it was revolutionary in the sense that we were getting we were getting guests and speakers who we would not have had access to in certain places. So that was definitely something to be gained. Um, the flip side of that is obviously, especially in rural Arizona, you know, a lot of people don't have access to internet or communication. And it brought up a lot of issues of like, okay, how can we tailor our policy on the campaign? How can we flag that up to be like, these are issues that we should be communicating to voters. Like, how will we make sure that their kids can learn in a virtual environment? How can we make sure that they get access Internet because education is so important. So it was, you know, our communications was not 
just about like, okay, like let's just do a fun Twitter graphic. It was also like, how do we make this as informational as possible and uplift the voices that we care about the most in Arizona? Yeah, for sure. So we're going to pivot a little more toward the political side now. Tell us mm -hmm. about election night um, or I guess election week in Arizona. Um, what was it like for you personally and for the campaign in general? Yes. Oh my gosh. That was such a wild time. Um, I was not physically in Arizona, so it was a little weird not being with my team because that's what I had envisioned would happen. Um, a lot of the things that we focused on were voter protection. So election week, you know, we had a bunch of events as well, you know, making, our, making sure our surrogates um, were doing that final, you know, get out the vote push. We had early voting in Arizona. Very like it went on very late, pretty much until the very last minute. Um, so kind of getting out the, the vote there, making sure people knew where to vote, how to drop off their vote. So that was like that was a lot on that side. And then Election Day itself was very much like voter protection. On Twitter, what are people saying about these polling locations? Can they get their ballot? Can they, you know, are the printers working? Are people able to vote? Um, and that was that was basically what I was up to. It was very exciting. Once the polls closed, though, it was very much a waiting game. And I think that myself and a lot of members of my team were also very anxious because in COVID times, you can't have like the big celebrations and you can't, you know, get together with other people. So it was sadly just a lot of like waiting around my laptop for things to do at this, as soon as the polls closed. Um, but the week leading up was very chaotic in terms of getting people out to vote, which I think really paid off for us in the end. So you worked both in Arizona and not in Arizona, which ended up um, swinging this election in one of the most historic elections of our time. So what are some of the big takeaways about politics that um, you took from your time on the Biden campaign? Oh my gosh, there, there are too many to say in one short spiel, but I will try. Um, the first thing and the most important thing um, to me in general, that, you know, building relationships and making friendships that really last are so important. I would not have been able to, to work. It, there were some days where I was working like 12, 14 hours. That, that's a lot of work, right? And I would not have been able to get through that without the incredible mentors and the people that I worked with. My boss, Jeff Bergen, who was our comms director, our press secretary, Nicole Pester, like they were just so supportive and very willing to teach me and guide me through things. Um, people that I worked with on the coordinated campaign, Gabriella Sid, like she, she taught me how to write digital content essentially for a campaign. And that was so huge to me. And these are relationships that I know are going to last because, you know, it was built on such a strong foundation of we have a passion for the same things. We care about the same things and we're excited to help each other. Like, as a, as a young woman of color in politics, it's not, it's, it's not a lot of time that you see like someone who looks like you and thinks like you in high positions of power. So it was nice to have that. Um, so that's a big takeaway, build relationships, um, which I know is very cheesy. And the second takeaway is like, you know, just really listening. I know that's also, it sounds very basic and straightforward, but working in a place like Arizona where, like you said, like it really could have gone so many ways and um it was a challenge and the reason that it worked really well is like i said our you know our campaign and our state director really valued hiring people who had experience in the region who were from the latino communities that we wanted to communicate with who were from the tribal communities um who lived in not just phoenix but yuma and flagstaff and tucson you know all across the state 
And that really built a really solid team who like knew what they were doing and were very ingenuitive. And I really, really liked that. So that's another important lesson. And the final, final thing I'll say is let young people take charge because that's, they have done an amazing job. Um, a lot of people on our team were very young, very experienced, but also very young and brought a really awesome energy. And that was really awesome to see. That's so great. Um, so we have one last question. It might be a little difficult for you, but what was your favorite memory from the campaign trail? Okay, this is not difficult at all, um, actually, because I because this is the story I tell every single time. Um, I had several really incredible memories. Don't get me wrong. I loved everyone. However, I got to book Carrie Washington on a radio show. And she, if you know me well, she is like my idol. I love her so much. And I basically reached out to um, Natasha Castles, who run, who does the Castles show in Arizona. And I booked Carrie Washington. And I did a, I helped with like the briefing memo. I physically booked her on the show. And then so Car somewhere in Carrie Washington's inbox, there is an email that says, Biden campaign contact Aida Ross. And that is good enough for me. So that was <laughs> high key, the best memory that I've made so far, um, apart from the incredible people, of course. Leaving your digital mark on history. <laughs> I know. <laughs> good. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for returning to the pod and, and sharing your experience. That was great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome talking to you guys. Thanks for tuning in to our first episode of Season 9. We hope you enjoyed going behind the scenes with Hoyas on campaigns across the country. To get the latest updates on our episode releases, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at FlyOnTheWallPod or email us at FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from all of our listeners. See you next episode.